Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. I have not been exposed in depth to many industries that are averse and reluctant to change as much as the media industry. It's just, it's a very slow moving industry. AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson, how he's transforming a telecommunications giant into a modern media company following the merger with Time Warner, plus his fierce defense of the free press. I personally think that there is nothing more important to our constitutional form of government than freedom of the press. The full weight and resources of AT&T will be committed to protecting First Amendment rights wherever our people operate. Also, what AT&T's $180 billion debt load will mean for investing in the business and the critical question of protecting customers' privacy. I sat down with him at AT&T's Relevance Conference in Santa Barbara. I should note, AT&T owns Warner Media, which owns CNN. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope you're having a good morning. I woke up at 4.30. Me too. You too. Yeah. <laughs> you too. Uh, thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you. Uh, good to be here. So for those of you who don't know, Randall's first job in 1982 at AT&T, uh-huh. the year I was born. Do you know what it was? Up. I do know what it was. You didn't have to add <laughs> <laughs> that last part. Seriously, you were born in 82? Seriously, boss. Uh. Um, <laughs> night, night shifts. Night, the night shift changing magnetic tape on mainframe computers. Do you even know what a magnetic tape is? Not really. Yeah. I so that was his would. job. And then when AT&T proposed buying my company, Time Warner, when the merger was announced, the Wall Street Journal headline read, meet America's least likely media mogul. Took offense to that. Yeah, I understand that. They were talking about you. Uh, now you are a media mogul. Uh, you've never run a, a movie studio before, you've never run a television network before, you've never run a news network before, and now you're running all of them. It can't be that hard, can it? How's it going? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you're in for it. Um, how's it going? So far, so good. Yeah. I mean, we're really pleased with uh, what we've got, and as we've got past the trial and could actually get in and begin to meet people and and get our hands dirty in the businesses. It's, uh, it's been fun, just learning. I, I, I love to learn businesses. I, I, not that, I don't have that much of a fetish about media and movies and so forth, but the business models and learning the businesses mm-hmm. and so forth has been fun. And we put John Stanky in to yep. run it, which I know you have met mm-hmm. John Stanky. The name sounds intimidating by itself. <laughs> and uh, he's, as Jeff Bukas tells me, the guy looks and sounds like a linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys, right? He is right? about seven feet tall. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he's just under seven feet. There you go. But, uh, but I think he's doing a terrific job, and so far, so good. So we're going to get into uh, a lot of that and, and into the lawsuit and the hurdles in a little bit. But, but let's just talk about relevance and being relevant. That is the name of the conference. This is a you know, 142-year-old storied company. Jeff Yang, who I just met, who, who sits on the board, came up with this phrase that you've adopted and repeat often, which is modern media company. I'm interested, Randall, in not just what it means to be a modern media company. A lot of entities can be that. What does it mean to you to actually be relevant and to stay relevant? 
Oh man, that's, that's what you live and breathe when you're running any company. I don't care what it is because especially in this day and age, businesses and business models and technology, I mean, I just never seen it move this fast. And if you're a CEO, roughly every 18 months, you're having to make bets that are, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too melodramatic, but they, they're somewhat existential in nature. Sure. And uh, in our business, I, I've said this a lot and I, and I believe it, that you miss one technology cycle in the communications industry. Mm-hmm. And it, it may not kill you, it can, it's killed companies, but if it doesn't kill you, it will wound you for a very, very long time. And, uh, and so to stay relevant, you've just got to constantly be investing and you've got to be investing not on today, but you've got to be investing on where you think the world is going. So talking about where the world's going, um, look, I mean, AT&T was built on landlines. We saw that photo of Brian Lesson yeah. in the phone booth, right? Fit, and it? what? It really fit, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's not that today. And when you think of the paid for, you know, subscription television, um, my job today um, makes a lot of money, the, the, that, that line of business, but it's not the future of right. what it's going to look like. Um, you've said five years out, the lion's share of traffic on AT&T's networks will be driven by video, which gets to the uh, merger, obviously, and premium content. How are you going to use this data? Because you have been outspoken about how producers and actors and some of us in, in media can be wary of using data to make programming decisions. But you said, can that not help inform your view in terms of how you'd like to be investing in content? I believe it should. Those were your words. So what are you going to do with all of that data in terms of programming and content? We were talking backstage. I. Uh I've been involved in a lot of different businesses and a lot of different industries. I was on the board of Boeing, which you think slow moving, uh, big infrastructure, long, long cycle investments and another company that was in the consumer products, communications. <laughs> I, I have not been exposed in depth to many industries that are averse and reluctant to change as much as the media industry. Us. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, because you think of media and you think of, of entertainment and how it moves fast. And it's, but, but in terms of business models and changing how you deliver the product, it is an industry that has about as much inertia as any industry I've been involved you in. You don't think we move quickly enough? I don't think they move at all. It's just, it's just it's a very slow-moving industry. And when you, when you talk about change and you talk about changing how the, the content is delivered and, and how content is paid for and how content is monetized and it's going to have to change, there's just walls go up. It's really interesting. It's been intriguing to watch. And I think it's going to be fun to kind of go through this process and, and see if we can make you know, some of these pivots. So you ask... Uh, how will you use data? Look, right. any businessman will tell you more intelligence is just better for decision making. Mm-hmm. The more information you have, the more you can risk manage, you know, your investment profiles and so forth. I don't see why media and entertainment are any different. But in that how regard. do you do that, Randall, and not stifle creativity? Because you've also been quoted as saying in the last few weeks, you have to guard the culture with your life. Yeah. You know, there are decisions that I make on my show every morning, not because of how they will rate but because that's a story we need to tell, right? So how do you, how do you walk the line? Yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with creativity. 
I think Poppy Harlow has a, a capability, you have a creative capability, and, and you're really gifted, and CNN itself is just filled with these people. As I think about where would you like to invest the next $100 million? Right. To the extent that we have data that tells how customers respond to Poppy Harlow and so forth, we can say, wow, that, that would probably be a really good investment. We can risk manage. We can think differently about how we invest there. We can think differently about how we invest in, uh, in, in uh, the next J.J. Abrams content. So sure. forth. we know what this guy looks like. We know what audiences love him. And so you, can, you find yourself willing to invest more in new projects because you have information in terms of how those projects will monetize over time. It doesn't change how I view J.J. Abrams' creativity. Mm -hmm. I, I would never engage in that. But nor where do you even, put the money? but just where you put the money. So, so to that effect, congrats on the six Emmys for HBO this year. And, uh, and Richard I, I, Butler. You, thought, you didn't think I was any good at this, did you? <laughs> we're just I mean, look, starting. Look look what's happened since we're, we came in. I mean, look at the movie slate that just, came out. Yeah, it's, we're it's just, unbelievable, we're like, isn't it? Uh, we're a second into this, boss. <laughs> um, congrats on the Emmys uh, to Richard and his entire team, six Emmys. Um, you know, HBO has been number one at the Emmys for the last 16 years. Netflix this year. It's impressive, wasn't it? Seven Emmys. And Richard said to my colleague Brian Stelter, who's here, a tip of the hat to Netflix for all their great work. And John Stanky said, who heads Warner Media, my goal is to give HBO the resources to green light additional projects, but I don't want to recreate Netflix. So what are you building with HBO? Uh, Actually, we're building on HBO. I, I think they are, I made a quote a couple weeks ago that they're kind of the Tiffany's of, of creative. You did. You made some headlines. Yeah, it's, but I, I believe that. I mean, they are kind of the, the premium uh, element of TV content. Let me and read the whole quote for people. You said, I think Netflix is kind of the Walmart of subscription video on demand. And Why H do people laugh at that? And H and and H and HBO is the Tiffany. So, Doug McMillan. My journalist, you know, Bell was going off, and I want to know exactly what you mean by that. So Doug McMillan is the CEO of Walmart. He's a very dear friend of mine. <laughs> he called me the next day, and he said he wanted to know what I meant by that. Also, <laughs> I, I bet he did. <laughs> They're a really big customer, and uh, <laughs> and. Uh, I told him, I said, look, if I am going to go shop for something, whatever it is, I, uh, I'm going to go to one place generally where I know they have everything I might be looking for. Walmart comes to mind. And I said, you'd probably prefer I said Walmart and not Amazon, right? He said, yes, I absolutely would prefer Walmart. And, uh, and as I think about Netflix, you know, if you're looking for some kind of content, it's the place where you go and you know you're going to have a wide variety, a deep inventory of content to go watch, and you're probably going to find something that you want to engage with. That is not the HBO business model. It's premium content. It's premium documentaries. It's, it's premium scripted series. And, I mean, Game of Thrones is just like the, the premium of premium, right? And so that's why I say we're not trying to make HBO into Netflix. That's not the objective. Uh, but by that same token, you know, you look at Warner Media, and they invest, we invest every year a level in content that's equivalent to what Netflix invests. And so, you know, there's... As a whole. As a whole, yeah. But you have said, I mean, you and John Sankey have both said you want the lineup at HBO to be more fulsome, to right. be more than just Sunday night, right? Correct. So what are we talking about? 
I'll leave that to John Stanky to put meat on the bones. He's working on this right now, and I don't want to. I don't want to get in front of him on this. But uh, to make sure that as you think about going through the course of a year, mm -hmm. that there is always something new and fresh on HBO and that you don't have these customer patterns where people are coming in and out of the content. You'd like them to be engaged with the content year round and in rather mm -hmm. persistently and consistently. We just think that makes for a better experience and a better product. He has talked about, John has talked about being aspirational, his word, in terms of the number of households that in his words find it valuable enough to have HBO inside. Right. And when you look at the spend, um, HBO spent $3.7 last year on, on content. Um, and you've said, look, it's unlikely that AT&T will, you know, will spend the 11 to 12 billion that it's projected Netflix will spend on content this year. But as a whole, WarnerMedia will match that. How are you looking to beat Netflix? Are you looking to beat Apple in the content game? And a, how much money are you willing to spend to do it? And B, what tells you that you won? We're all competing for customer time and attention, customer engagement. Just, I mean, CNN is competing so for customer time. So are we every time, morning. Right, every right. single morning. And, and so what can you do to build a product that drives that kind of engagement, that kind of interaction where customers... Uh, our viewers literally think every day, I need to be on HBO to see something, that there's something engaging that attracts them to it. And so I, I do believe it's going to require a little more investment. Well, you to said make every day. That's a, that's a key word. You said every day. I do think it should be. Every, I think we should aspire to everyday engagement on these platforms. And that, that's what we're looking for. Um, money doesn't grow on trees, as I was told when I was three years old. So... Uh, you told the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago that you were thinking about shifting some spend from Time Warner, Turner units, you know, whether that's TNT, TBS, to HBO instead. And, and the proposal would be potentially rerunning some of that HBO content then on TNT, on TBS, on these other Turner units. Made a lot of headlines. Is that the strategy? Yeah, like I said, Stanky's going to flush out the strategy in detail. But I'll, I'll go back to, I don't care what business you're running, whether it's AT&T, our broadband business, it's our mobile business, whether it's a media business. Your number one job as an executive is appropriate allocation of capital resources. That's just what you do as a living, to be quite candid. And so John Stinky's a big boy. He's overrunning Warner Media. He's got some big boy decisions to make in terms of how he allocates capital to accomplish what we want to do here. And so that means you're, some areas are going to get more capital, some areas are going to get less capital, but you do these things over time. And, and I, I, I tend to think in three to five year time horizons in okay. these things. And uh, I don't think you're going to wake up tomorrow and see a major capital shift in Warner Media. But I do think over time, capital gets reallocated to those areas that will drive daily and consistent and perpetual engagement. So it sounds like you're saying if HBO proves that it can do that, that it can be that everyday entity, and that it can be and meet those aspirations, that it will then be a place where uh, a significant amount of that capital would be wisely shifted. Absolutely. I, 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 I will be disappointed if three years from now we're not investing more in HBO. It would be a very big disappointment. I just think we all have such confidence in Richard Plepler, their business model and what they've created over there. You just say, can we do more of it? And if you put more resource to it, could you get more engagement? Where I think we're actually all very bullish that we can do that. Let's talk about Xander and let's talk about what smart advertising really looks like. Because I remember interviewing Eric Schmidt 
10 years ago when, when he was running Google. And he was talking to me at the time about, he said, Poppy, why aren't our TVs smarter? And he knew the answer. And our TVs are smarter now, right? Yeah. But advertising still isn't that smart. I see the ads that people see on my show. And I wonder sometimes why they're seeing those ads, right? right? And um, especially when, you know, where we are in 2018 and where we are with digital advertising. So, I mean, you've said just owning great content is no longer sufficient. This is about direct relationships with the consumers. In your vision, what is making advertising smarter? What will tell you we've done it? So you, you, you framed it well, and uh, I think advertising is really, really smart in half of the world. The digital half is really good. The digital half is very targeted. The digital half, if you're an advertiser, you're, you're getting good feedback. You're getting the ability to manage campaigns and, and to deliver ads kind of on your own without a lot of human intervention. It's just a very different world. If you look at the side of the equation where you operate in premium video, the traditional TV business, it looks nothing like that and the advertising is not terribly targeted. The advertising does require a lot of human intervention. We're still selling the lion's share of the advertising and upfronts and so forth. And so we actually believe that if you can make the premium video side behave, look, operate like the digital side, mm -hmm. that people will invest more and that people will be excited about the advertising model on that side. We, we, uh, have done this in a very small degree after we bought DirecTV. We bought DirecTV and we ended up with a lot of ad, a little bit of advertising inventory. Mm -hmm. Two minutes per hour of, of, uh, of programming on CNN, for example. We have two minutes of every hour on DirecTV we could take to market. So we have all this data on our subscribers, viewership data, uh, we have location data on, on mobile and so forth. And, and so we have been in a very, what I'll call primitive fashion, working with some of you out here putting together a business model that said, what would happen if you could get that targeted into, the, into your programming? What would it look right. like? You know what it looks like? We have a business where traditional subscription revenues are declining three, four percent a year. The advertising on those is growing 16, 17 percent year mm -hmm. over year. That's not being very good at it yet, all right? More from my interview with AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson after the break. You, you said during your testimony in, in, in the trial, um, quote, the better you do on advertising, the less you have to charge the consumer for service. And that sounds really attractive. Um, the question is, how do you use all the data from the 47 million paid TV subscribers, 163 million mobile subscribers, 16 million broadband subscribers? Can you walk us through what your vision and Brian's vision is for how that would look because it's not just feeding me a different ad on my television. It's using my TV and my phone to get to me in some relevant way. Right. So this is a big investment in technology, a big investment in, in data mining, data capabilities. And so we have been working on the data piece of this for quite some time. So we have, to your point, a big distribution business. We have 170 million customer relationships where people are viewing content, they're using their smartphones and so forth. So we have all of that data. That data is being ingested, it's being formatted, and Brian and his team are working very hard to, to get that data ready to be put to work. Now that we know what people are viewing, we have demographic data, now we can get very, very targeted 
with, uh, with that data and how we deliver advertisements for you folks. The objective is not just to, to present the same kind of ads to, the, to just very targeted audiences, but change how advertising is delivered and how it's consumed. So you said it, Brian has this vision. I, I wish I could take credit for this, but I think he's spot on. That is, I'm watching content in my living room or I'm watching it on my tablet or wherever I happen to be watching it. Mm -hmm. What do we know? We know that that individual that is watching that content also has in their pocket or at their side a smartphone. Can you begin to do things that engage the customer in advertising on a very brief basis, but then if it's something that the customer wants to engage in, direct it to the smartphone, but get back to the programming. So if you know I'm looking for a new car. Correct. What are you gonna do about that? So uh, CNN, my demographic, and by the way, uh, what I am watching, if my wife and I are both watching CNN, she's in her office and I'm in my office at home. Is she here? She is not here. I thought, I thought it was you right there. <laughs> <laughs> but if it, we would, at maturity, we would not be seeing the same ad. Right. I would not be, you know, seeing the kind of ads that she'd want to see, nor would I hers. Ad pops up. I'm in the market for a car. She and I don't have the same taste of cars, but an ad pops up. If that's something I'm intrigued by, that ad can be directed to my smartphone. And now I go directly to an ad. I even can go to a dealership in the Dallas area. And the beauty about this is, we are really at a place where we can begin to complete a full circle for advertisers. Did the person see the ad on the TV? Did the person engage on the smartphone? Did the person go to the website that was where they were engaging on the smartphone? Did the customer actually end up on the lot of the car dealership? Are you going to be able to know at some point if I was in the room watching the TV or if I was running after my two-year-old in the other room? Uh, if it's, yes, we, we will know where you were watching it. Were you watching it on a TV mounted on a wall? So we know you probably didn't take that with you to chase your daughter right. down. But if you had a smartphone, you but conceivably could have, went. right? Yeah. But we will, we will know, we can actually complete the circle. Did the customer end up in the location where the product is being sold? And ultimately, did the customer actually Buy engage it. in commerce? Right. Well, what about for toothpaste or something like that? I mean, why do I need to be tar targeted with a specific toothpaste ad, for example? I mean, what is telling you, Randall, that this is going to work for the majority of advertisers and the majority of products that I'm going to want that targeted advertising? I don't. That's actually a question for an advertiser. What I think we can tell an advertiser is we can get targeted to Poppy. We know what Poppy's tastes and preferences are. We know correlations of Poppy watches certain programming and therefore they tend to like certain products and they tend to have certain needs. So we'll be able to give that we actually have a lot of these correlations now. The advertisers will determine whether they want to, to target you with a specific toothpaste or not. Privacy. Uh, you, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a big deal because, you know, DirecTV is telling you my viewing preferences and telling you a lot about me. And my phone is telling you where I am and where I want to go. So how are you going to protect us? And do you want national regulation on this across the board? First of all, yes, on the second, the national regulation. Uh, we have a situation where you know privacy is the big issue of the day, particularly for advertisements and, and so forth. And we have a situation where out here in California, legislation has been passed mm -hmm. on privacy and how privacy will be regulated. You have New York looking at it. You have New Jersey looking at it. We're going to end up in a situation 
where you as advertisers are going to have 50 different sets of rules and regulations around what you can and cannot do. So first and foremost, yes, we need national legislation. This is, you know, you need to get Congress going. And, and I know this is, we don't good, all- Good luck. With good luck getting. with that, right? But uh, we need national legislation so we don't have 50 different sets of rules. I, I think we need one riot, one ranger. We need one regulator over all of this. Today, some are regulated by the FCC, some are regulated by the well, FTC. Should it be, what entity should it be? If you ask me my, uh, my opinion, FTC, they, they have the tools, they have the history, they have the ability to regulate these kind of things. So get it in one place, the FTC, you own it, you regulate it, and uh, set one set of rules. I think what's going to be really critical here, and we always bias ourselves first and foremost from the consumer standpoint on transparency. Whatever you're doing, make sure the customer knows what you're doing and make sure the customer has the controls. If you don't want to be targeted, you don't want your data used, you ought to have the controls to dictate that. What lessons can be learned uh, from history on that? I mean, do you think Facebook, Google have done a good enough job of making it really easy for me to understand what I'm signing up for? And if not, do you think you'll do it a little differently? I think they're getting better. Uh, you know, you can go out and look at how your data is being used on those platforms now. And I think that's important. It's a, it's a big step. And I, I think it's a, a step everybody ought to be required to do. That's the part of transparency. Can that data be used, you know, by the customer themselves? And so I, I think they're getting better. But I think everybody is going to have to step up their game. But I do think everybody who's involved in this industry is going to have to play by the same rules today. Everybody has different rules that apply to different companies. 5G. Uh, this is quite a race. And right now, AT&T is on track to become the first company to launch a 5G cellular, cellular, cellular network by the end of the year, right? 12 markets? Mobile. Mobile. You've said this is going to take us to a whole different place. You did a fascinating interview a little while ago with Recode, and you talked about how valuable premium content is going to be five or six years from now and the amazing amount of bandwidth that it's going to take to get it to where we want to consume it. What will a 5G world look like for us, and how is AT&T going to play? When you think of a 5G world, I mean, we tend to think of fast, right, that it's a fast network, and it, it will be. I tell people this is the equivalent of having a fiber optic cable connected to your smartphone or to your tablet. Fast is part of it, but it's the instantaneous nature of it. I mean, it is truly, use a techie term, but there's no latency in a world of 5G. You, you initiate something and bam, there's instantaneous connectivity and in whatever content you're trying to get to, it's instantaneous. And so you think about what are the applications where that's going to be really, really critical and you, you know, your mind immediately goes to autonomous cars, right? That's the easy one that sure. you can think of. But think about in a world of media and having that kind of instantaneous access to all content. We think this is a big deal. I, I, I have a border on religious about this, that if you believe that you can execute on delivering this kind of capability, no latency, high speed, instantaneous, high quality content, it opens up a world of virtual reality, augmented reality, and just even your content anywhere, anytime, instantaneously. And as we thought about this and where this is going, it's just a whole new world of distribution for media and entertainment content. And candidly, as we thought about where to invest in the future, you know, there are a lot of people two years ago when we did the deal, Jeff and I, who believed that the valuations of media companies had peaked. And as you recall, some were starting to come down. 
Our view was, look, you get a whole new level of distribution out here on media. The values of media, we believe, are actually going to be more. Is it a more eyeballs play or is it a better product play? It's all of the above. I mean, it's more eyeballs, watching it more persistently. Everything kind of rolls on itself. Think about a world of autonomous cars. This probably gives most people in this room an extra hour or two a day if you're in a car that doesn't require you to drive. What do you do with that hour or two? We believe you're going to consume media. So everything that we're talking about doing is gonna free up people's time. What will they do at that time? We see people, I just with Jeff Katz, Jeffrey Katzenberg this morning, he's of the same mindset. The, that extra time will go to media consumption, video consumption, and so that's where we want to be investing. And so we think it's gonna change mm -hmm. the whole media landscape as we move into these areas. And the first 5G devices, you, you've said, these aren't going to be phones, these are going to be pucks, if you will. Tell us more about that and also the biggest hurdle to, to get to this world that you're envisioning. Uh, the biggest hurdle is just, look, it's, it's an infrastructure project, all right? This is, this is boring stuff, but people have to go out and deploy fiber and hang up hundreds of thousands of cell sites all around the country. They're gonna be on telephone poles and so forth. You're gonna have to get the government to give you rights of way to put these things there. So getting the governments to, to allow this kind of infrastructure to be put in place, that's the long pole in the tent. And that just takes, <laughs> just takes time and money, right? It's like everything that we tend to do, it's time and money, and, right. and that, will, that will transpire. These technologies, when they materialize, they go, it takes so much longer to get there than people expect. But once the infrastructure is in place, it explodes. I, I, I never for, will never forget we talked about we want to make the broadband mobile. This was back in 2005, and I was chairman of Singular Wireless. You remember this company? I do. And uh, not that young. We said, so we're going to do it. We're going to invest in this, but we didn't really know what a, a mobile internet looked like. Isn't that amazing? 2005 wasn't that long ago. Yeah, and, and we we were literally just investing ahead of the curve. We have this premise: if you make something mobile, the consumption will explode. Make the internet mobile. So we start investing and. Steve Jobs shows up with this idea, and it was nothing more than an idea at the time about this phone. And as we engaged with him and talked about it, they said, that's how the internet becomes mobile. So what happens? That comes along, right. then Android, and now all of a sudden, 10 years later, this thing has exploded. It will be the same with 5G. You also knew at that point, Randall, that you were going to have to retrain almost half of AT&T's workers. Right. 100,000 employees' jobs at AT&T would, be, would have been irrelevant if you had not said they have to learn this and this is this huge change. Is this a moment like that? Is 5G a moment like that? Uh, in terms of employee capability and so forth, uh, it's a continuation of that effort. Uh, it, it's not a step change, you know, kind of thing like we had in those early days. We're moving into a world of software. Right. And so the, the trajectory that we picked for our employees and said we have to, to, to retrain and, and re-equip our employees for a world of software, that is continuing. In fact, that will continue till the day I retire and probably till the day I die. So we're just going to continue down that path because the world is moving to a world of software. Um, I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about the freedom of the press today. Um, as a journalist, obviously, I have a vested, and as a citizen, frankly, a vested interest in the First Amendment and the freedom of, of the Fourth Estate. Since AT&T now owns CNN, what's your commitment to the freedom of the press, which is uh, consistently 
under attack by the highest office in the land. So we uh, just went through 600 days of getting a merger approved. It's a merger that was challenged by uh, the antitrust division, which I thought was an incredibly weak case. I have stated publicly that one has to question what the motivation was behind the challenge. What and, do you think the motivation was? Say what you will about our president. There are some who support, some who don't. One thing everyone must concede is this president, when he makes a commitment, he tends to follow through on it. And he makes campaign promises, he tends to check off boxes and follow through on it. Before the merger was actually approved formally by AT&T, candidate Trump said, AT&T is acquiring Time Warner and thus CNN, and that's a transaction my administration will never approve. Let me quote him. AT&T is now trying to buy Time Warner, and thus the wildly anti-Trump CNN, Donald Trump would never approve such a deal. That was candidate Trump. That was candidate Trump. And so, look, when that statement was made, we said, okay, this is interesting. Uh, this individual's elected. We, we, you know, we, we know that he tends to follow through on what he says. And so when there was a, uh, a lawsuit filed against AT&T, uh, as you know, we, uh, we made it a, an issue within the, the litigation mm -hmm. of the trial. And the judge denied it. He said, get it out. He didn't want it to be in the courtroom. But uh, so we litigated the case. Now, I will tell you, our board and we, there was a level of commitment to this that was beyond just trying to get a merger done. There was a level of commitment where we believe that we were fighting for constitutional protections that are enshrined within the First Amendment, freedom of the press. We actually believed that, th that there was an element that you, if you were the public and looking at this, you had to question whether these elements were relevant here. Just pause there for a moment. You felt like in, this was more than a business deal. You felt like in acquiring Time Warner, you were fighting for the free press to remain the free press. I said on CNN directly that we will not be party to anything that would give even the impression that we were compromising the First Amendment protections of freedom of the press. And so there was a level of conviction on this that was centered around those protections. Now, we've gone through 600 days, we've gone through a bruising court battle, and we won the court battle. And it was a big element of this, a considerable element of this, was this issue. Mm -hmm. Now you ask, what is my views on freedom of the press? Look, I think my views are, are very obvious on this. I, I personally think that there is nothing more important to our constitutional form of government than freedom of the press. I think to the extent we have more freedom of a press, it requires less government intervention. If you're doing your job, you're holding me accountable. You're holding presidents accountable. You're holding governors accountable. And so to the extent that we have a good, vibrant, active press, it holds me accountable. And it makes sure that I'm doing the right thing by my customers, by my employees, by our communities. So I think a free press is critical. And I think a free press is critical to a, a form of government that I think was enshrined as more limited in nature. But to the extent the press doesn't do their job, then I think all of us uh, ought to be worried. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, we will... I've said this to my, our employees back home, AT&T, the full weight and resources of AT&T will be committed to protecting First Amendment rights wherever our people operate. So if you happen to find yourself in some other country 
and there are issues of free press, the full weight and resources of AT&T will be there to support you. As we have seen with journalists who risk their lives to bring us these stories. The Department of Justice is appealing the merger of AT&T and Time Warner. You told the Wall Street Journal earlier this month, I have a sneaking suspicion when we announced this deal. Had we said that we were selling CNN, I probably wouldn't have had the issues that I had surrounding getting this deal approved. Um, You didn't sell us. You could have. Why is CNN such a valuable asset to this company? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's first and foremost a principal issue. But as you think about a world of media and entertainment combined with a world of wireless distribution, Mm -hmm. live, time-sensitive content is, we think, the killer app, right? And there's no killer app for that that quite uh, measures up to news. And I think news is one of these areas that we just want to be very prominent in this area. I think it has a strong uh, social uh, level to it, but just as a business aspect, live premium content, news and sports Mm -hmm. are hugely important. A few quick follow-ups and then let's move on. Have you spoken to the president or senior staff in the White House since uh, since Judge Leon handed down his decision, since the trial? Since the people in the administration, I don't, that's not, I have to think, I don't know, I don't think so. The president? Not the president, no. Um, Do you worry that any future AT&T uh, deals that may come before the government will be adler- adversely affected by the president's animus towards CNN. Say that again. Do, do I? you have any concern that any future issues AT&T may have before the government, deals that AT&T oh. may have with the government, contracts, anything may be adversely affected because of the president's animus towards CNN? No, I, I, I hope not. And uh, so far, we've seen no evidence that that's the case. I mean, it was a hotly litigated thing. It was, uh, people got bloodied up in it, but the contest was over, and I, we, everybody seems to be moving on. Um, all that you're building uh, costs a lot of money, and since this deal has closed, AT&T now has $180 billion in debt. You've said despite that, despite those numbers, we're not going to be penny-wise and pound-foolish. If you don't invest top-tier, you won't remain top-tier. What do you see that the analysts who have questions about this don't see? And what does it mean for all these investments? Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more strongly. I have deep conviction to what you just said. If you're not investing in this industry at the top tier, you will not remain top tier. So we're going to continue to invest. We have, uh, every year that since I've held this job, we have invested each year more in the United States of America than any other company, period. We invest at an incredibly high rate, and we're going to invest this year somewhere in the order of $25 billion, which will once again be the highest of any company in the United States. People talk about the debt load, and we did take on a lot of debt to do this deal. And, uh, but what I told Wall Street last week is this company is very healthy. It generates a lot of cash flow. And uh, if we just take every discretionary dollar of cash flow after our dividends and apply to debt pay down for the next 15 months, we exit 2019 back at two and a half times debt to EBITDA. That's a financial geek term, but it's back to kind of a more normal level of debt for us. So look, we're gonna have to suck it up for the next 15 months. And you say four years you think it'll take. Uh, to get back to this level that I just told you, end of 2019, we'll be back to a level two that, a yeah, at two and a half times debt to EBITDA. And I, I would tell you at, two, at that level of debt, 
then a board starts to ask, should you keep paying down debt or should you start buying back stock, right? And so, but that, what I would want to get to is that kind of level by end of 2019. We have good line of sight to making that happen. So of all the areas that I'm spending my, my sleepless nights worrying about, mm-hmm. that one isn't in my top five. You gave an interview five years ago to Leaders Magazine, and you said size is a detractor from innovation. How do you keep innovating with how big this company is now? How are you going to do that? And how are you going to guard the culture? And I guess, how are you going to make all of us in the media side of it move faster since you think we're crawling? So that's going to be my big, uh, <laughs> my big effort. Uh, first of all, you, you, I, I completely agree with that, that size is a detractor to innovation and to speed. And so when you create a big company like this, you have to start creating small areas and it changes how you govern a company so john stanky runs warner media he runs warner media and i have to i have to think differently about how i manage a business like this john stanky and i cannot i cannot be involved in the level of detail with him that i would have been three or four years ago the company will come to a grinding halt if i do that the same way with john donovan who runs the communications business brian lesser who runs this advertising business I have to turn him loose. This is really hard for a guy like me. I was going to say, how's that going? It's really hard, but I think it's going well. I'm the same way. (laughs) But I think it's going quite well. And uh, and so you got to put the structure in place, the controls and the governance mechanisms to make sure that these guys have the freedom, the flexibility to move. You know, that's what Warren Buffett famously says, right? You you, you buy companies with smart leaders and you let them do their job. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, uh, that's where we are. I think we've got... Lori Lee, who runs all the Latin American portfolios, doing a great job, and these people are now running their businesses. Now we have certain synergies we have to get. So Brian Lesser, Brian Lesser uh, in Xander will not succeed if he is not tightly coordinated with John Stanky and his massive inventory of, of advertising at Turner, and he will not succeed if he doesn't have ready access and putting to work the data that comes out of our big distribution company and those 190 million customer relationships. So you have to build in the, the, the connective tissue to make sure you're executing on these things. And that's the art rather than science. No pressure, Brian Lesser. No pressure to Brian Lesser? He got a hell of a lot of pressure, yeah. <laughs> There's your headline, journalists in the room. Final question, um, other than watching, I appreciate the candor, other than watching Game of Thrones and Succession, I love Succession. I do way, too. Uh, what keeps you up at night? Uh, if my grandkids stay with us, they do. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, look, the same things that have kept me awake every night since I've had this job, and that is what's next. Mm. and. You know, so Warner Media is done. What's next? Now, where does this go? And where do we need to be investing next to make sure that we're staying ahead of this? You talked about a 140-year-old company. You just, you don't stay alive and you don't stay relevant if you're not constantly looking out at the next cycle. Acquisitions, is that what you're thinking about? You know, somebody who's looked at the history of our company might logically conclude that's where you would go, right? Uh, one, one might. Uh, but. Uh, who knows? I, I obviously wouldn't discuss that in detail, but uh, you know, I think there are going to be things that we want to add to this business over time. And once we get past the debt pay down, we'll be looking about uh, looking at how do we uh, okay. put those pieces together. Randall Stevenson, thanks for the time. Thanks this so morning. much, Bobby. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.